We're about to um, just start and um, open with a reading of scripture. So if you would um, uh, stand up and just grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand and uh, someone will pass um, a Bible out to you. And that's our gift to you if you don't currently own one. Um, Today we'll be reading from um, Psalm 116. Uh, this is um, this is God's word to us today. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. But then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. And I said in my alarm, All mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant, and you have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord, and I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Can everybody hear me fine? Awesome. Let's take a moment. Just calm our hearts and go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Father, as we are about to consider your word that speaks such truth to our hearts and our souls, the truth to the hope that we have, we pray that the meditations of our hearts would rise up as an acceptable aroma of worship into your throne room, that you would change hearts of stone here today to hearts of flesh, and that you would take wounds that are hurting and make them whole again and increase our hope in you, our faith in you, our love in you. And we only ask this because the blood of Jesus has made that possible. So we pray that now in his name. Amen. So growing up, I was always known as a heavy sleeper. I could sleep through anything. My brothers would like take my mattress and flip it around, and I wouldn't wake up, and then I'd cry (laughs) because the wall was not where it was supposed to be. Or my roommates would do stuff to me while I slept, and I would wake up a mess, just oblivious to everything. But now that, I don't know if it's that I've gotten older or that I've got five kids, uh, if one of them cries out in the night, boom, I'm, I'm like a man of action, superhero. I'm, my body is, my brain isn't, because it's not woken up yet. So I can just about kill myself running down the hallway to get to their rooms, uh, because I hear them say, Daddy, and I'm just keyed in on that. And so I'll run into their rooms. Well, at least the girls' room. 
but the boys' room, you need to shuffle your feet because it's strewn with Legos. <laughs> and if you've ever stepped on a Lego, you know exactly what I mean. So the point is that when my kids cry out, I hear it. I mean, I'm, I'm keyed into that cry because I have known them their entire life. And as a parent, even when you're in a crowded room, like a playground filled with kids, when other kids cry, you don't really notice. But when your kid cries, you recognize that and you key in on that sound because you've learned to distinguish your child's cries from others. And so whether it's late at night or in a playground, you know when your kids cry out. Well, Psalm 116 is very much a psalm that deals with a child crying out to his father in a moment of of great distress. We see the author as a a child of God calling out to our Heavenly Father in this distress. And And the blessed thing is that he is heard and he is delivered. And so right off the bat, we know that he is heard and delivered from the first two verses. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. These two verses act kind of like the thesis statement for the rest of the psalm. They set the tone. Verses 3 and 4 give the background into why the author called on the Lord and how the author reached out to God. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Verses 5 and 6 then give a description of our God that hears. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Then the rest of the psalm is just an outpouring of praise and an insight into the life of the author at this point. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. And so as we dig into Psalm 116, I want us to consider just a couple things. What are the circumstances here? Like, like, what is going on that the author would need to cry out the way that he does? And and what what leads to that deliverance? And, And what is the response of the author when God delivers him? And lastly, what encouragement can we find can we possibly have in this psalm for those that cry out for a deliverance that never comes? And as we go through this psalm, we won't be going verse by verse from start to finish. It's going to be jumping around a little bit as we look at the cry, the results of the deliverance, and the encouragement when our cries are unheard. So the cry, the results of the deliverance, and final encouragement when our cries seem unheard. And as we consider it this morning, it's my prayer that we will all see that we have a Father in heaven who values our lives 
who sees our lives as having much worth and very much wants us to cry out to him, that he hears our cries, and that when he doesn't answer our prayers in a way we want him to, he can deliver still. It isn't because he doesn't hear us or he doesn't care, but rather he's unfolding a plan that may only be clear in the hindsight of eternity. That is to say, not our will be done, but his be done is better in the long run of eternity. Saints, let me say that again. God is unfolding a plan that may only be clear in the hindsight of eternity. And so we don't know the specifics surrounding the distress that the author went through. We know he's hurting. And maybe that's a good thing. Because if the distress had been something like, I'm about to die because I got some food poisoning from some really bad salmon, we might not be able to empathize with that as much because we're not all necessarily suffering from food poisoning. Rather, this, this distress, whatever it is that's ailing him, is unknown. But it's the sort of distress that leads to the point of death. That we can resonate with. Because some of us here have actually faced death. And virtually all of us have a loved one that has faced death. And maybe not knowing all the details here allows us to focus on the bigger picture that is the forest instead of the trees. And the big picture here is that when we are in distress, when we are in those moments, when we're at the end of ourselves with nowhere to go, God is always there for us to turn to. We turn to God because he's our father. He's our Abba Father. And he's the one that ultimately holds our lives in his hands. And so the college I graduated from sends out like, uh, like a quarterly magazine oftentimes asking for money, but they've got some interesting articles in there at times. And I just got one the other day, and I read this article. It was about a young couple. They were also alums, and they had lost their baby. And the baby was born three months early, and there was no chance of survival. And in the article, the mother wrote, during those hello and goodbye moments, the veil between the physical and spiritual realm was paper thin. Think about that. A baby coming into the world. A life ending. Those, those kind of moments are the ones that we particularly think deeply on God. Because in those situations, there's a much keener awareness that there is something more beyond this mere existence. Something beyond that which we can just see and touch. And I think it's because God has put eternity on our hearts. And in those moments, that keenness, that awareness wakes up. We can't breathe the breath of life. And we can't prevent death. But God can do those things. And so in those moments, that spiritual realm moves closer to the forefront. And so it's no wonder that in a moment of facing death, our author turns to God. And I mean really looked to God, really turned to God. Not just a casual turning to God. It's a cry of distress. There is panic in his voice. And I think we can all relate to this to some degree. For me, with five kids in our house, I can promise you it's a safe bet there's always some sort of ambient noise in the background. But when some of the kids get hurt, the noise changes. And I know in an instant that that child is in distress. And they know to change their cry. And so the cry is different than the child that doesn't want to go to bed. It's a very unique cry, and I hear it. And so starting in verse 3, we get a picture of that distress that makes this cry so significant. 
The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. The foregone conclusion here is that the author is going to die. This guy is going to die if something doesn't change. And the imagery here is someone who is caught, being boxed in and strangled by impending death. It talks of the snares of death. A snare is a very effective and brutal trap. It's just, it's very simple. It's a loop of wire on a stick that the prey walks through. And as they walk through it, they get caught up a little bit. And the more they walk through, the more they're strangled. It's like one of those plastic zip ties, if you've ever got one on your finger, a little too tight. They only go one way. The more they struggle, the more they attempt to pull away, the more they are caught and strangled. And so to be encompassed by the snares of death is to be caught and strangled by death. Struggling, fighting, and resisting is going to do nothing to forestall the inevitable. And so at this point of distress and anguish, of no hope, the author called on the name of the Lord. Verse 4, Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. This This is actually a moment of worship. When we call on the Lord in those moments when we are at our end of ourselves, it is a moment of worship because we're recognizing there is nothing we can do, there is nothing anyone else can do, but only God. In His supreme worth, we are ascribing much worthiness to Him because He is able, and that is worship. Recognizing Him as the supreme one that only can turn those things to joy. And the Lord heard his cries and inclined his ear to him. And we know he lived, not just because he wrote this psalm, but laced throughout this psalm are the words that speak of this deliverance, starting in verse 1. He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Verse 2, because he inclined his ear to me. Verse 6, when I was brought low, he saved me. Verse 8, for you delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. Verse 9, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And so we see an author that is delivered. So let's take a look now at how those cries for deliverance were transformed into cries of praises. You know, as, as he cried out to the Lord and was delivered, what, what changes were wrought in his life? And as we do this, I want you to be thinking in your own mind, how would you react How could you express that inexpressible joy of being heard and delivered after crying out to the Lord? We can oftentimes gain a lot of insight into these types of questions when we put ourselves in other people's shoes. As Atticus Finch says to his daughter, Scout, in the book To Kill a Mockingbird, you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view. So let's consider the psalmist's point of view here, because we certainly get a glimpse of that. We see the inward attitude of his heart overflowing into his life. And this is awesome because the community around him is blessed as a result. It begins in verse 12 where he says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? At first read, this may look like he's saying, How shall I pay God back for what he's done? But this is not an expression of payback as though we could ever pay God back. This is an expression of gratitude, which is very different than payback. But we do love to pay back, don't we? 
I don't know if you're like this or not, but for me, sometimes when somebody does something nice for me, I feel this compulsive need to bless them back to a similar degree so that we're somehow even and I've been able to save face. Like when someone gets you a gift at Christmas and when they surprise it with you, you smile outwardly, but inwardly you're thinking, (laughs) I didn't get you anything. (laughs) I need to get you something. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I went to go to South Dakota to see my parents. And I do not travel. I'm a homebody. And so I asked a couple of friends, you know, like, uh, how is it taking Uber? And, and is it better to take a taxi and whatnot? And, and these two friends blessed me immensely. One of them offered to drive me to the airport, and one of them offered to pick me up. And that was such an incredible blessing. But there was a huge part of me that was just like, oh my gosh, I got to do something for them. I gotta, I gotta find out a way to serve them so that we can somehow be on equal footing. But there was nothing I could do in that moment. I just need to be grateful and have gratitude and love those brothers because they helped me out in a bind. And my gratefulness was that they're my friends. And there's a big difference between saving face to not owe somebody and a heartfelt gratitude that takes joy in the indebtedness that we have. We save face so that we will not be indebted to somebody. But here in Psalm 116, the gratitude expresses itself by announcing that indebtedness to the Lord. So in verse 16, O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. He isn't just like volunteering to be a servant to serve God. He's recognizing that his position is like one who is born into servanthood meaning this person is wholly, completely, totally, and utterly owned by the Lord. Showing gratitude is a heartfelt expression of the appreciation for something that someone has done for us or something they have given us. And I think a good way to read this is as a rhetorical question. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Meaning, what can I, what can I possibly do to pay the Lord back? And the answer is nothing. How can you pay back God? when everything is rightfully his in the first place. Eric read from Genesis 1.1, God created all things. All things are his. If you're going to get in like a a people-making contest with God and he picks up dirt and you pick up dirt, he's going to be like, get your own dirt. (laughs) Acts 17.25 tells us, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all to mankind, life, and breath, and everything. The repayment in Psalm 116 is not really a repayment at all, but rather yet another instance to point to the greatness of God and worship him out of gratitude. It has nothing to do with our human understanding of paying him back as though we ever could. And then again, notice where all of this takes place. Verse 14, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, Verse 18, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people in the courts of his house of the Lord. In your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. And so what started out as a cry to the Lord for deliverance from death has now culminated to a communal culmination of praise in his name in the midst of all his people. Psalm 116 shows us that deliverance by God rightly results in worship and thanksgiving that overflows into public praise. That's why I love baptisms. You see the person go into the water and come out. It's that symbolic form of 
the old dying and the new being brought to life. And the community sees that and witnesses it because it's a public profession of one's faith in Christ. Brothers and sisters, it is an act of praise and worship to talk about the ways that God is working in your life. It's an act of praise and worship to make known what God has done for you and to publicly declare the hope that you have in Christ. And when you share, you encourage the saints around you. And when they are encouraged, they are built up to delight in the Lord. It's just like a, an ever-consuming fire that gets stronger and hotter and burns brighter. And the brighter it burns, the hotter it burns. And another moment of praise comes about in verse 13, where the author says, He will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. This lifting up of the cup of salvation is thought to signify like a Thanksgiving drink offering. As Christians, this, re- this imagery should resonate with us. Taking the cup of salvation, holding high the grace poured out for you at the cross, and the fact that God has saved you, and drinking deeply from this truth, and coming back for more, but continuing always in your life to call in the name of the Lord. As John Piper puts it, the vows will be paid by holding up the cup of salvation and by calling on the name of the Lord. That is, that they will be paid by faith in the promise that more grace, all-sufficient grace, is always on the way. Our God is a great God that gives in abundance more than we could ever hope or ask for. And so knowing all this, we've seen the author call out to God, and those are his cries, and we've seen how he's been delivered. But what about us? You know, reading, reading passages like this in Scripture sometimes begs the question, what about us? Like, do, do we cry out to God in that same way? Am I crying hard enough? Is he going to hear me? Will he care? And some of you here this morning would immediately say yes and amen. He does and he did. And others may be thinking, I, I know the Bible is true. I believe that. But I just, I don't see God delivering like this. Maybe not in this instance. And still others of you may even be thinking and feeling that a cry to the Lord is like a cry into a void that goes unheard and unanswered as though we've been left alone to suffer our fate. And what about those times when we, we have seen people in dire situations plead with God on their knees, pour their hearts out with fasting and prayers, asking for deliverance, and yet they or a loved one dies? As I was preparing for this sermon, thinking through all this, I found myself a bit conflicted. On one hand, we, we do. We see God's miraculous delivery of this person. We see the praise and the hope and the worship that it produces. And I have seen that in the lives of saints in my life. A miraculous delivery from situations leading to death is not a universal experience for all Christians, though. But I, I don't think that that should be the expectation. So my conflict was how do I preach and encourage the saints to cry out to God for delivery when we know of loved ones in our lives that never get that deliverance, or we have loved ones in our lives that are now crying out for such deliverance. What if that deliverance never comes? Does that mean that Psalm 116 is for a select few? I think the answer is not found in our human understanding. 
It's not found in, in how loud we cry out to God, how eloquently we cry out to God. It's not found in anything in us. It's found in the very character and nature of our righteous Heavenly Father. And so by seeing things from His point of view. And one of the most beautiful and comforting verses in all of Scripture is verse 15. Because it shows you God's point of view. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. From God's point of view, your death is precious. It's because you're going home. He wants you home. And he loves that. Another way we could read this is valuable or costly. The death of his saints, the life of his people committed to Yahweh have great value to him. Our God is not a wanton God that is wasteful and uncalculating simply throwing away the lives of his saints on a whim. You cannot think this when you read verse 15 in light of verses like Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God put a lot of effort into creating you in Christ Jesus. Christ had to suffer immeasurable torture to make you into a new creation so he does not take that lightly. And we can see that if you are in Christ, God has prepared a plan for your life for you to walk in it. He has richly invested in you to succeed in those works he's prepared. A plan to glorify himself through the good works that he prepared in advance that you should walk in them. And this is not should in a moral obligation of the sense of the word. It should in the same sense of the verse that at the, knee, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's going to happen. There is a certainty, a purpose that God has ordained for your life. And if you are a new creation created in Christ Jesus, he has ordained good works for you to walk in them. And as a good and faithful servant, when you have finished your work, 60 years, 10 years, 10 minutes from now, When you've completed all that God has set out for you to do, He calls you home to glory. Saints, our cries for deliverance are heard. But the most important cry from deliverance is not a cry to forestall death. It's a cry from deliverance from our own sins. Our good Father hears us, and when He says no, it means that He has something better in store for you than what you are asking. Sometimes we feel bummed for like Moses not getting to go into the promised land. But that's like, Dad, can I go to the rundown carnival on the edge of town? No, we're going to go live at Disneyland where there's no lines forever. (laughs) He doesn't want you to stick around. He wants you home. He wants you to be with him, and that is precious. Going home is precious, and we cannot even fathom how amazing it will be 1 Corinthians 2 says, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. God wants you home, and it's going to be an amazing surprise for you when you get there. 
And so it makes sense for Jesus to pray the way he did in John 17. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is that good and godly shepherd that intensely longs to be with his sheep. Jesus asked the Father for many things for you, but this longing stands out to me. And unless Jesus comes back in your lifetime, you know what that's going to mean. I know what I'm about to say may be sobering and hard to hear, but the plain and simple fact is that on a long enough timeline, the survival rate for the human race is zero. Every person in this room will someday die. Any, any answer to prayer that, that you ask for God to forestall your death is but a reprieve, a delay of the inevitable, of the moment that you cease to draw breath. And the author of this psalm was given a reprieve, but he eventually died. And make no mistake, death is so costly. It's costly in tears and loss and sorrow and heartbreak. Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. Even though he was going to raise him in the next few minutes, he stood there weeping. And even though we take joy at saints going home to be with Jesus, we weep, we mourn nevertheless. Because death represents great loss for us here on earth. Death is the last enemy that will be destroyed. Death is not natural. We hate death. We resist it. It's the proper wages for sin. Death came about because of the fall that we, Eric read about this morning. The curse in Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So knowing that this is true, that death is the enemy, how can we count death as gain when God seems to say that there's not going to be a deliverance for us? The only reason, the only reason at all in all of creation that we can even say that is because nearly 2,000 years ago, when a man as human as us faced death in a garden, cried out to the Lord as he prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus said that his soul was sorrowful even to the point of death. The perfect, sinless Son of God cried out in that moment. That was a moment of distress and he cried out to God and asked God, if there is any other way, let this cup pass. And so God said, no. There's no other way. And so Jesus embraced God's no and died so that God would be able to say yes to his children when they cry out to him for eternal life. Jesus switched the cups. He drank our cup of wrath so that we may lift up that cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I said earlier that death came about because of the curse, but it wasn't just physical death that came about. The death that came was a spiritual death. This spiritual death meant that we were separated from God 
It meant that every human being is born at enmity with God, hating God, hating the things of God. We are hardwired that way because of the fall. But as the psalmist reminds us this morning, it doesn't, it doesn't lie with us, the, the ability to make things right. It's with God's unchanging character. He is gracious and righteous. Our God is merciful. And so when we are incapable of coming to God, He graciously came to us out of mercy to give us His righteousness. He sent His Son, sinless and perfect, to live the perfect life of obedience that we never could. And there's nothing we could ever do to merit His love or to earn that grace We cannot undo the offensiveness of our sin just by doing better, doing more. Any more than a dead person can give themselves CPR. And because God is so holy, just, and righteous, He must punish sin. It would not be in keeping with His character if He just ignored sin. And that is where the obedience of Jesus comes in. Jesus gave Himself up for us as a propitiation for our sins, a payment, a ransom. His life, His obedience, His righteousness was given to us and for us. And in that great exchange, after we had exchanged sin to get the fruit in the garden, Jesus exchanged His righteousness with ours and took our sins upon Him and suffered the full weight of God's holy wrath. And as he hung there on the cross, he cried out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That should have been us. We should be rightfully forsaken by God. We deserve that punishment. But because Jesus has that perfect righteousness, death could not hold him. And he rose from the dead on the third day in triumph over death, so that now and forevermore we can shout in victory, Where, O death, is thy sting? For those that know Jesus, you know this as a cry of victory. You know Jesus is the resurrection and the life that whoever believes in Jesus, though he die, though God may say no to a prayer for deliverance from impending death, though he go through that ordeal of dying, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Jesus shall never die. Friend, if you are here and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, I plead with you to call out to him. There's no guarantee that if you cry out to God, he's going to forestall your earthly death. There's no guarantee he's going to make your life on this earth longer. But the blood of Jesus carries a guarantee. It's guaranteed to cover you and save you from your spiritual death, giving you eternal life, if you but cry out to him to make you alive in him. God will hear your pleas for mercy. He will incline his ear to hear you. Right now, even now, the snares of spiritual death encompass you if you don't know Christ. Pray to the Lord to deliver your soul. Pray to receive Jesus as your Savior, to take your sins and blot them out, to count you as one of his saints, so that when you do die, you will go home to be with him in glory, and it will be precious in God's sight. It will be a demonstration of the supreme preciousness of Christ's life and death on this earth. Imagine that joy and love Jesus exudes when he welcomes you as a saint to glory. Oh, Father, this is another one of my flock. 
the fruit of my pasture, another son, another daughter brought to our family. Is this not precious? I want to end with an excerpt from Pilgrim's Progress. It's a very old book, written in 1678 by John Bunyan. And and if you get it, I would recommend getting the updated modern English version. And it follows the life of the main character, Christian. Christian comes to faith after meeting a man named Evangelist. And they're on their way to the celestial city, heaven. And by the, their way is like fraught with peril and trials and whatnot. And along the way, he meets another pilgrim named Faithful. And when Christian and Faithful get captured in a town called Vanity Fair, Faithful is put on trial, sentenced to death, and horribly martyred. And after this, Christian escapes. And Faithful is given over to death. But in death, he is faithful and true. And his life is a testimony, like that of all martyrs, of the worthiness of Christ. But Christian goes on to live and to walk the path set before him, offering hope to those who have none. And so in that, in that very story there, we see gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. And this holds true regardless of whether we live or whether we die. Here, one died and one lived. And ultimately, God who is sovereign over all things is glorified in the lives of both. So listen while I read this very brief excerpt which follows right after Faithful is martyred and taken up into heaven and Christian is released from prison. Christian, for that time, escaped them and went on his way. And as he went, he sang, saying, Well, Faithful, you have faithfully professed unto thy Lord with whom you shall be blessed. When faithless ones with all their vain delights are crying out under their hellish plights, sing, Faithful, sing. Let your name survive, for though they killed you, you are yet alive. Friends, it is, a, it is a good and godly thing to cry out to our Father in heaven who hears us. It is a, a good and godly thing to ask for deliverance from death. But if he doesn't give us this respite, please know with confidence that his will is better than our will. His plan for our life is better than we could ever hope for or imagine. So cry out to the Lord when you are in need. Cry out for others in need. And cry out with the confidence of a child that cries out to their father, knowing that their father hears them. But ultimately, that what God does will be best to the praise and glory of his name. Praise the Lord. Every week here at Sojourn, we're reminded of what Christ has done. That he defeated death. That though we will die, we will live. And we remember his sacrifice through the Lord's Supper. We remember that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to them, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a shared act of communal worship that we do together. And there's nothing magical or mystical about this bread and grape juice. The beauty is in what they point to. Jesus offering himself up for us, hearing us, hearing our pleas for mercy and forgiveness. 
And if you're a Christian, you can freely rejoice in the Lord, taking joy in the fact that you have called out to him for spiritual life. Rejoicing that God, the Lord, has forgiven your wickedness and will remember your sins no more. And when you breathe your last faltering breaths on this earth and then breathe no more, it is going to be precious in his sight. So with this in mind, take a moment to examine your hearts and your minds. When you come forward, what Jesus has done on the cross will be spoken over you. If you've not put your faith in Jesus, we just ask that you remain in your seat and just think about, soak in what we talked about today. The Lord's Supper is an act of worship for those that have placed their hope and confidence in Christ's blood to turn away wrath. And so while we're excited that you're here today, please understand that this act of communion is our corporate and individual yes and amen to what Jesus has done for us. Please take that time instead to ask God to open your heart and to make clear your need for a Savior. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we... We rejoice in the fact that we can cry out to you, Lord, that you hear us, that you love us with such immeasurable, unboundless, unending love, that while we were yet still sinners, you sent Jesus Christ to die for us. While we were enemies of you, you died for us. Lord God, we pray that you would hear us as we cry out to you, whatever our needs may be. But ultimately, Lord, we pray not our will, but yours be done. Because your will, like you, Lord, is perfect and just and holy and righteous. And we love you and we trust you. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.